0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning, I want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online. And though they're celebrating at the farm right now, let's publicly celebrate our North Site as one family, one year of ministry. We're so glad.) for all you're doing up in Port Perry in that district. We love you, and we're so excited, and congratulations. The most significant year in all of history is 33 AD. It is the last year of Jesus' life in ministry. It is the year of his death. It is the year of his physical resurrection. It is the year of his ascension, and it is the year where a new movement was born called the church. In the three falling crucial decades after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, this movement began to spread, which is now the largest religious movement in all of history. It spread from humble roots to every corner of the modern gro- globe. Today, at this moment, and within the last and coming 24 hours, hundreds of millions of people will chant and sing and pray and give and live and preach and serve in the name of Jesus from almost every tribe and tongue and people group and family and nation. With 200 plus billion adherents, it has changed the fabric of civilization, it has defined cultures, it has informed education, medicine, law, freedom, it has defined, especially in the West, historically human dignity, and most importantly, it has changed the personal destiny and lives and narratives of billions of people over 2,000 years. But it all started with a small group of men and women waiting for the impossible and asking that God would move as they cried out, Spirit move, and heaven answered, and he moved. Welcome to our series out of the book of Acts, and welcome to the theme of our year called Spirit move. If you've grown up in church, maybe you've called the book of Acts, the Acts of of the Apostles, But truly, I think the book should be labeled the acts of the Holy Spirit and the prayer and the hope and the declaration and the expectation as we will see as we walk through the book of Acts 2,000 years ago as it was written and experienced was this, that the Spirit of God would move in great ways and change scenarios and make the impossible possible. And in our post-Christian, post-modern, yet weirdly modern, sexualized, multicultural, radically globalized, mobile, connected, yet fragmented world, we here at C4, along with thousands of churches around the world, pray the same prayer. We pray, O Spirit, would you move? Yet, as a church, no matter its denomination, size, or style, utters those words, sincerely, Spirit, move. As we mouth those words, we must stop. And we must wrestle with something at the beginning of the conversation. Many good Christians love reading Acts as narrative, historic history only. But as we will discover when much of what we read in Acts is actually for today, and when narrative is declared to be normative for us also, it begins to challenge our basic experiences, it threatens our Western worldview, and it also pushes us out beyond a sanitized version of church. And so with great expectation, we together must begin to ask new questions as we pray sincerely, spirit move. What is the actual history of the early church? What did they value? Who were these people? What was their worldview? What did they do in the area of pastoral care and preaching? And how did they live? And how did they do church together? And and how did they deal with other religions? And how did they deal with diverse sexual worldviews? And how did they change whole families? And how in the world did a bunch of ragtag people actually change actual cities and then a whole empire? Our journey begins in Acts chapter. 1 verse 1 and it reads like this in my former book Theophilus I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen many of you know this some of you may not the author here is Luke he has just written the gospel of Luke that's book one and Acts is book two Luke was a medical doctor who became a follower of Jesus. He interviewed and researched all that was claimed about Jesus. He went to all the eyewitnesses over those three years and interviewed them and wrote the gospel of Luke. But now he actually on the ground in the first 30 years of our movement felt that he needed to continue the story and also begin to clarify and defend this move of God and help people from diverse backgrounds to understand what was really going on. He begins by saying that he is writing the book of Acts to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus, many scholars believe, was an upper-middle-class Roman citizen, possibly even part of the government. But here's what is most important for us as we begin our journey today. Most believe that Theophilus was a brand-new Christian, or actually not a Christian at all. Luke's goal was to give him more accurate information to historically root and explain our faith either to a brand new believer or a deeply seated skeptic or a genuine, see- a genuine seeker. And this is important because no matter who you are today, no matter who's listening online today, whether you've been a Christian for decades or years, whether you are a brand new Christian, whether you are a seeker wondering about this movement or your hands are crossed and you are deeply skeptical, this is the best series you could join us for because Luke is writing for the whole audience to understand what is truly taking place. It says in verse 1 that between Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead and his ascension, he was giving instructions to his followers. Now, this really matters for us, especially we in this church who are one quarter through the journey as a church towards our vision. It says that Jesus was giving commands. Orders, not suggestions or musings, and Jesus begins to tell this original group of people what he is going to continue to do through them via the Holy Spirit. For 40 days after he rose from the dead, he spent this most precious time, like this is the most precious time he had, and the main activity he does is he preaches and he teaches to this community. Some of you who are part of C4 are going, Well, John, Honestly, why is that such a profound, huge insight for our church? Well... Mid-journey in our vision, it is what we have seen and kept on seeing here at C4. Follow this strong, accurate, spirit-empowered teaching always sets the ground for ongoing revival. Edwin Orr, who's the famed person who actually studied ancient moves of God for 2,000 years, found that there was a common thread between all moves of God, no matter the culture. He always found out that there was always theological awakening before there was... Was awakening among the people. Doctor John McKay wrote: First, the enlightenment of the mind; then the burning heart. First, revival of theological insight; then the revival we are seeking and need. See, Jesus models this right at the beginning of our movement. That He comes with great power of the Spirit. He teaches what the worldview and reality should be, and then the power of God, which they are seeking and praying for, is given. Luke, still thinking about Theophilus, writes this in verse 3. After Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was still alive. Let me just reiterate this again, no matter who you are this morning. Our movement is fundamentally grounded in the idea that Jesus was really historically here. That Jesus was really killed, that Jesus was really dead, and then Jesus really physically rose from the dead three days later. At Easter in our community, we did a whole series asking this question: Can a rational, intellectually informed, historically honest person actually believe not only that Jesus existed, but he actually really did come back from the dead? If you have not resolved this issue, I encourage you to go and listen to our Smoke and Mirror" series, because as we walked through the facts and history, we came to the same conclusion that Luke did: Jesus did come back from the dead. And as I preached, and as Luke points out in the whole book of Acts, if Jesus rose from the dead everything changes. If Jesus rose from the dead, atheism is answered. If Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism is resolved. If Jesus rose from the dead, every single religion and spirituality would have to reevaluate itself at its core. If Jesus rose from the dead, death is answered because we now know what lies beyond the grave because someone went through the grave, went to the other side, and came back and told us what it is. If Jesus rose from the dead, the human family no longer needs to ask who God is, what is he like, or if he's involved, and if Jesus rose from the dead, we can meet God. If Jesus rose from the dead, there might be purpose in our life more than money, acquisition, sex, power, being moral, or inventing religions. And if Jesus rose from the dead, the coffin or cremation fire, which all of us will face, though we don't want to think it will not be the end, because Jesus has overcome cremation and the coffin already. See, this is Luke's point. Jesus, while he spent these 40 days, and remember Luke is a medical scientific doctor who is on the ground asking questions and he's saying to Theophilus that this man, Jesus, actually rose from the dead and everything has changed. It says in verse 3, he appeared to them over 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, teaching before power. And the heart of his teaching was the kingdom of God. Now, we as a church in the last three years have worked a lot to understand the kingdom of God because Jesus said the reason why he showed up was to bring the kingdom of God, to usher in the kingdom of God, and to stabilize the kingdom of God among us. Now, the kingdom of God is not a place, it's not the nation of Israel, it's not the church, it's not geography. The kingdom of God is any space or place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed and embraced and accepted through Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are a member of the kingdom because you've welcomed Jesus to be your Savior, your Lord, and your what? King. Well, somewhere in the middle of that 40 days, as Jesus was continually blowing their minds because he's no zombie, he is actually alive. And as he's teaching them profound things, the tone changes. It says in verse 4, on one occasion, in that 40 days, while he was eating with them, and I just love that, let me just stop again, I think if I had been Peter or John, I'd just keep staring at him and touching him for 40 days, he's really eating, he's eating, it's not falling out, that's amazing. For 40 days, while he's eating with them, he gives them, look, notice, a command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father's promised, which you've heard me already speak about. For John, my cousin, baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. After proving Jesus was alive and he actually was who he was, after teaching them and walking with them and eating with them and giving hope and rebuilding friendships and, and, and literally changing the fabric of the world, Jesus says to his closest friends, and by the way, I'm out. I've told you for three years that I would have to leave, but don't worry, I'm about to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the first time they really understood the power of this is right after Jesus rose from the dead when they were in a locked room and they were afraid from their lives and they were hiding from the Romans and the Jewish leadership, it says in Luke that Jesus appeared among them. They freaked out. They thought it was a ghost. They realized it wasn't a ghost because Jesus asked for some food and ate in front of them. And in the middle of that epic, life-changing moment, Jesus says this to them in Luke twenty-four forty-nine: I am going to send you what my Father has promised But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you have been, I love this word, clothed with power from on high. I remember uh, junior high well. Do you remember it? Amen. (laughs) Junior high is always a difficult moment. And I remember coming to junior high. I went to an all junior high attached to a high school. I went to something called Stephen Leacock. It's in Scarborough. And my parents had been former missionaries. My dad was just starting a business. We were not wealthy at all. We were lower, lower middle class. And I remember coming into this junior high and realizing where I was in the pecking order and realizing what I was not. There was one guy at the center of our school named Brad. Brad was tall, and he was good-looking, and all the girls wanted to be with him. And the thing that made him stand out, other than he was an athlete, was this. He actually had a new set of clothing every single day from the best stores. Do you know that person? Do you remember that person? Maybe you're like, I'm in junior high. I know that person. Maybe you're like, I am that person. Okay. (laughs) We'll talk about humility in a minute. And I remember in my day, I'm 41, so now I have crossed the line. In my day, Converse was on its second major revolution. Roots had just come out, but Randy River was the store for us. Anyone remember? Now, I just want to say to all you millennials in the crowd, you're copycats. We had all your clothing before you did. So I remember going by that store, and we didn't have the money. Well, my parents saved, and I saved. And I walked into Randy River in Scarborough Town Center, and I was able to buy one outfit. And so the day came where I walked in. Now, the interesting thing was I was about the same build and height as Brad. And when I had hair, I had the same hair as him. So I walked in that morning, and I was dressed in my clothing. I wish I had a shot of it. I don't. And as I was walking, some of the cool crowd walked behind me, and they said, hey, Brad, what are you doing today? And I kept walking hey, Brad. And I turned around, and they were like, because I was John. In that moment, I felt so amazing so empowered. Well, there was quite a reaction in the crowd. Lots of people came and looked at me and sort of gawked at me and couldn't believe this. But here's the problem. I only had one outfit and tomorrow was coming. And you know what happened because you're all laughing at me now. Thanks. See, here's what we need to understand and this is so important. See, I felt for that moment my destiny had changed because I had the right clothing and of course it didn't I felt valued and loved for a moment, and it changed my destiny for an hour. But Jesus comes along and he says to people like us, no, no, I am going to put clothing on you that changes you forever, and it never, ever runs out. And when I clothe you, watch out, because the world will be different. Jesus says, I am going to leave So the Holy Spirit is going to rest on each of you personally. Now, can you imagine hearing this as an Orthodox Jew and a follower of Jesus and you've declared Jesus is the Messiah? Hold on. Hold on. Jesus, you're telling me that the same Spirit that I read about in Genesis at the beginning of creation... The same presence that was that pillar of cloud and fire when Moses and the Jews were in the wilderness, you mean the same fire that was at the burning bush, the same presence at the Ten Commandments, the same presence that filled Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's temple. You're talking about the same fire that came down on Mount Carmel when Elijah was taken on the Baal prophets, the same glory that Isaiah and Ezekiel was overcome by. Hold on, you're telling me that the glory that shone around the shepherds at Christmas, the same power that actually was on your mom jesus mary and caused that virgin birth thing hold on you're telling me the same power that rested on you at your baptism is going to be given to me and rest on us and not for a moment but permanently we would expect like wow amazing epic great speechless generosity grace spirit move but this is not how they react we see how broken and human and self-centered and distracted they are just like us oh lord verse 6 so at this time are you going to restore the kingdom of israel face palm have you not heard what i've taught you for 3 years you're lured back to wrong thinking and wrong desires you want a territorial kingdom you want a national kingdom Now I'm raised from the dead. You think I'm going to deal with all the Romans and destroy? Oh, you think I'm going to make Israel great again and make everything right? Oh, you think? You think that because I'm God in flesh, I'm going to call down all the angels from heaven. I'm going to wipe out all your enemies and we're going to restore Israel to its prominence in the world. And it's going to be David all over again. Everyone's going to bow at my feet and I'm going to exalt you. No, Jesus says. How wrong and distracted you are. My kingdom starts in the heart. It never starts with a gun. It never starts with a knife. It never starts with manipulation. No, no. Let me replace one last time this uninformed vision with with a stronger and nobler and fair. Let me show you what the mind of God is. Number one, it is not for you to know the times or dates that my father set by his own authority. Excuse me. What Yahweh himself wants to do with the nation of Israel actually shouldn't even be on your radar. Yes, he'll do, no, no, not now. Something more important is happening at this moment. Don't you understand, gentlemen? Ladies, I died for the sins of the world. I rose again, I overcame death, I conquered Satan, and I didn't just do it for you and your in-group, and I didn't just do it for the Jews. No, I have done this for all people. And by the way, whether you're ready to hear this or not, your enemies, the people you hate, are about to become your brothers and sisters. And the real power of the sign of the move of God, when the Spirit truly moves, you will know He is present because you will end up witnessing to the people you hate the most. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit lightens on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, I'm good with that. Judea, that's fine. Samaria, hold on. Samaria, those half-dog compromise. Yep, them too. Oh, and by the way, and the ends of the earth the Romans, and everyone else in between. See, the Holy Spirit's not just going to comfort you and lead you into all truth and guarantee resurrection and empower you. He is going to actually send you out with purpose. It is the great cry of Zechariah 4.6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, not by voting and not by violence and not by making one group look like another and not by manipulation and not by forced conversion, but by the precious work of the Spirit of God. God. Self confidence and self sufficiency is always death in our movement because we can never send ourselves out and overcome the vast issues in our own heart, let alone the issues that happen in every church because we're a family, let alone the massive barriers in the world. He says, I'm not sending you out in your own clothing. I'm not sitting you out in your own power, your own abilities. No, I will give you the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and you are being sent out on a mission that the Spirit of God is already doing. You're just joining Him. Never think, church, this is our mission. We're just joining the guy who's already doing it. And he says, and by the way, you're going to be my witness. Now, the word witness matters. And if you're a highlight-circling-type person, you're taking notes, circle it. Because witness in the original language means not just one who knows the facts, but it is one who has actually experienced the person in the middle of the facts. You can't be a witness if you haven't met the one you've witnessed. He says, I am now sending you out in the power of the Holy Spirit. You now know who God is fully because you've met me, Jesus. And now the Father and the Son is going to send you out to begin to reverse Adam and Eve's decision for all of us. It says in verse 9, after he said these things, he was taken up. Before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So what happened? Well, they obeyed. They waited, and they prayed, and they wondered, and they were full of expectancy, spirit move. Verse 14, they all joined together, notice the word, constantly in prayer, along with the women, and even Mary, the mother of Jesus, and even his brothers. By the way, that would be people like James. So for a moment, in this in-between time where Jesus is now gone, they gather together and they will not give up. They will hold on until it changes. They pray and what happens? Nothing. They wait in the middle and then it happens. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. So God moves at the most strategic of times. This group of people, about 150, gather together. It's Pentecost, celebrated 50 days after the Jewish feast of Passover. Pentecost is one of the three pilgrimage festivals where Orthodox Jews for the whole known world would come to Jerusalem to give offerings to God in the temple. Hundreds of thousands of Orthodox Jews and those from other races and backgrounds that have converted to Judaism are now gathering once again, 50 days later, in Jerusalem to worship God. And then, unexpectedly, out of the blue, without warning, in the middle of their common faithfulness, the God they came to worship, the God they came to meet in the temple he moved, but God didn't show up in the temple, and God didn't meet the high priest, and God didn't even talk to any of the priests, and God didn't talk to the scholars. God decides to show up on a side street in an unknown room with the most unlikely of people to bring the world back to himself. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. Wind and cloud and fire and overwhelming. This is theophany. This is what we see every time in the Old Testament. Over 600 years earlier, the prophet Ezekiel was meeting with God and God showed him a valley of dry bones. And he says, can these bones live again? And in that moment, he predicted this side street encounter. Ezekiel eight fourteen. I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I've declared it and done it, says the Lord. Well, verse 4 in Acts, it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and suddenly, shockingly, unexpectedly, they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there was staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, in confusion, Because each one of them heard them speaking in their own native language. Now if you read all of Acts 2, what's amazing is 15 geographical places are mentioned and the languages of each of them. And if you actually did some homework, some geography, and watched this, you would see that the whole Roman Empire is mentioned. From the farthest eastern border to the farther western border, from the islands to the deserts, the whole known world is here. And you experience this moment just as God wanted this to be. God has answered this gathered church spirit move and given them the ability, suddenly, all at once, to begin to speak in languages they did not know to bring the world back to God through Jesus, through His people. Now, we read this, especially if you've done church in a while and we move quickly, we shouldn't. Notice that God does not use Greek, the trade language of the day. The equivalent, actually, today is English. If He had just given them all Greek, it would have been easy. He doesn't give them Hebrew, the the faithful language of the Jews, the, the, the language of God. What does he do? God decides to speak in each person's language that is emotionally closest to them. The implication is that God himself would speak to me in my language so there's no barrier, no cultural misunderstanding. So, so you would notice me personally and you, God, would take the time to actually speak in actually my own words, in my own heart language and tongue so, so I would understand you. And God says, yes, do you not know I have come for all nations and all people? I want you to understand me and feel me and know my love for you. And so much do I love you. I will speak in what is closest to you. Utterly amazed, they asked, verse 7, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Oh, the unsaid prejudice comes to the surface. Galileans were the backward people in Israel. They were the uneducated, not in smart. They would be the hillbillies, the the rednecks in Canada, parts of Newfoundland. It's Cockney in England. It's the flyover people, as they say in politics. All of that is presumptive and offensive. Of course it is. It's unbridled bias. But notice this this morning. Do not lose. Do not be distracted. Like God doesn't use the educated and the center and the elite by Galileans, the so-called backward people and the backwater people. Scholars tell us that the Galileans had the thickest of accents and everyone presumed because of their accent they were dumb. God does not move at the center he moves on the fringe, and the result in the center and the fringe is, dymanic, is dramatic and dynamic. How is it that each one of us hears them in our own native language? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Now, this is when the story gets unbelievably amazing or epic. Epic. See, God in this moment isn't just beginning to bring people to himself. God on this side street with people that should never actually be the center of God's move according to worldly standards is deciding to reverse the effects of Babel or Babel right now. Do you remember, do you know the story about our common rebellion as humans before God all the way back in Genesis 8 when we were still one people with one language and we'd been kicked out of Eden? And God had commanded us to spread over the earth and multiply, but we decided that fear and safety were more important than obedience and faith. Genesis 8:4, Oh, come, our ancestors said, let us come and build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we will make a name for ourselves and we will not be scattered over the whole face of the earth like God had told them. The great human project of unity is unbelief and it expressed in a tower A modern skyscraper in their time, Olympian in size, fortified. The word tower in Hebrew means human strength and pride. The spiritual intentions of our ancestors are found in their declaration, their vision and mission statement. Their manifesto is we will reach the heavens. We will live among the gods. We will access the God. We will access the divine. We will do this. We will invent something called religion. By our actions, we get to penetrate heaven. And since God has blocked us from Eden, we will force ourselves into heaven. This is power and spiritual wisdom, bottom up, not heaven down and it is the communal cry, of the great outcome of sin, where we say like the clay to the potter, you are now dismissed, we do not need you anymore, for God you are irrelevant because we know better than our creator. It says in Genesis that God had to come down from heaven to see the tower. I love that. Oh, I wonder what's going on down there. He comes down and he says in verse 8, 7, come let us go down and confuse their language. So they will not understand each other. So God scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them over the whole face of the earth. See, God understood to destroy a city or a temple or a tower was a part-time band-aid solution. See, he needed to sever the unity of the people because actually this is a heart condition and never forget why God chooses to do this. Because God had promised Noah he would never destroy us again. And so this is an act of profound confrontation and mercy. But now, let me make the connection. On a side street in Jerusalem, thousands of years later, with people from the wrong place in the whole world present, God begins to undo Babel. He will create a new unity and of human diversity. He will give them one tongue again through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus, through the Spirit, a new humanity will be created. The old dividing walls will be broken. And God does that day one when the church is born. It says in Acts 2.12, 2, 12, amazed and perplexed, They asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, oh, a little too much wine. By the way, this is important as we begin this series together. This will always be the reaction of genuine moves of God. Some will be perplexed and amazed. Others will say yes, and many others will say it is irrational and stupid. You're blitzed and drunk. You have no clue. This isn't God. This is you. Now, as we begin this year together, as we are probably one quarter of the way in our vision as a church, as we start this year with great expectation, let me say a few things. Number one, are you Theophilus? I mean, are you a new Christian or not a Christian at all? Then take the time. There is no better series for you to listen and hear the story and ask, is this true? Is this true? Is this relevant? Is this dangerous? Is this wonderful? Is this life-changing, or is this, like we said, smoke and mirrors? But let me just say this as we begin. I want to speak specifically to you as a community that are the Theophiluses among us. In a world that's divided by race, I've said this before, but it's important. In a world that's divided by race, in a world that divides by gender, and how much education you do or do not have, In a world that never lets you forget the mistakes you've made. In a world that actually says you are better or worse depending on the people you know or don't. In a world of violence and growing political extremism. In a world where family breakdown is happening. In a world where religious fanatics are killing at a faster rate. In a world coming closer and yet never being more far apart. In a world that is full of information but so little wisdom. Now in a world with over 7 billion people... Is there any person or movement that can meet the human needs we all have, answer the questions that are found in you and your kids and your family and your co-workers? Is there anyone, please listen, please, I beg you, is there anyone who could give you a real start that's new? Is there actually someone who could forgive you for all the stuff you've done in secret in private and in public? Is there actually someone who could so change you that you would have the ability to forgive people that have hurt you so terribly that it shadows your life? Is there anyone that can bridge the gap of politics and race and religion? And we as Christians stand up and we declare with everything that we are, yes, Jesus is God in flesh came and lived a life we could not live, died a death we deserved. When he was raised from the dead every sin, every demon, and every experience and outworking of death is overcome. And if you choose to meet him by the Holy Spirit, he takes you, good or bad, great or terrible, irreligious or deeply religious, shows us all of our problems, then forgives us, then makes us holy, then we're told we belong to him, then gives us a new family, he calls you out of darkness into the He allows you to join a new movement that is not based at all on ethnic nationality or geographical boundaries or how much money you have or your educational history or your skin color. No, we actually have joined a movement that is based on the love of God, the calling of the Father, the great mercy and grace of Jesus. And we are bound together because we're all sinners. We've been made saints and through that we have hope. So... If you're a Theophilus, our challenge to you, our invitation to you is this, take the sincere time to walk with us and ask the question, should I remain skeptical, seeker, or like Luke, should I become a follower? The invitation is given for you to truly ask the question, is Jesus who he claimed, is the Spirit real, and is my life possibly able to change? Now, many of us who are here today are Christians. Many of us are followers of Jesus here, and many of us have heard sermons out of Acts 1 and 2, especially if you've done church for a while. So you're sitting there going, oh, give me new information, John. I'll see how good you are. I got none. But let me say this to you. Jesus' last command is still our first concern. Jesus said, be my witness. You know, it was John Piper who was preaching at his church once who wrote these words. So you know, I don't become excited when denominations or churches react to their lack of growth by just adding a new program. I know the reason why so few real conversions are happening in my church. It's not because of programming and it's not because of staff. It's actually because Christians don't love the lost and yearn for their salvation like we should or used to. And the reason we don't love them as we ought to is because this love is a miracle that actually overcomes our natural selfish bent. It can't be managed or maneuvered into existence. It is an astonishing, heaven-given miracle. And then he says these words. So let me say it to you. I've said it to myself all week. Examine yourself right now. Does it lie within your power at this moment to weep, not cry, weep over the spiritual destruction of people on your street? Let me add something. Do you even believe that that's true about them? Such tears only come through a profound work of God, and if we want this work of God in our lives and in our churches, then there will be a decision among us of agonizing prayer. God, break my heart. We could call it spirit move. With such agonizing together, God might actually grant us the needed tears, but without those tears, we will shuffle members from one church to another, but few people will pass from darkness to light. See, the book of Acts begins in a prayer meeting where people are desperate saying, we don't have the clothing or the power, and so we need such a move in us that you actually have to do it, and we cannot. All we can do is continually ask. It's interesting that this whole last month We've been talking about the Holy Spirit and the thing we have come to the conclusion time and time again is we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the Spirit's mission. I need you. Like we prayed last week in all of our sites, oh, how I need you, Holy Spirit, how I need your character. We prayed about that. We prayed over the spiritual gifts we have or asking God to show us. But the real call is I need clothing that is not mine. There is this genuine self-humbling moment that goes beyond sort of a normative statement where we're saying no, to really see the church continue to grow, to continue to see people saved, to continue for me to love this church and forgive others and learn how to submit and learn how to, I need clothing that is not mine. Now I know when pastors get up and preach at this moment, many of you are going, but I can't do that because you don't know who I am. And I just want to challenge you this morning and say to you, I remind you that our movement began with a group of people who just decided to pray until it happened. And by the way, God is always looking for people who are waiting. And if you have a limitation, physical, emotional, mental, you fill in the blank. I remind you, our movement didn't start with theologians, and our movement didn't start with politicians, and our movement didn't start with generals. It started with backward Galileans who had no right to be there, but God showed up with the fringe and changed the world. Is that you be encouraged. So important. So what we see here in the book of Acts is this statement where the church comes and says, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins, and thank you that you've given us the Spirit. Now fill us to do this. The real question, and I'll end with this, is this. Will we settle with the status quo, what we have and what we like, or will we actually see the reality of the book of Acts happen among us? Ajit Fernando from Sri Lanka, some of you may know that name. He wrote these very profound words If something the Bible teaches about me is not true, or something not true in my life, then I must stop all activity and grapple with God until I know it is true for me. Just as the disciples waited in Jerusalem and devoted themselves to prayer. And then he wrote these very powerful, very simple, very churchy sounding words. To believe the Bible is to believe it's true. And to believe it's true is a declaration that you believe it will work. As he was preaching to his congregation in Sri Lanka, he said these words. A young preacher stood up and he said, I've been perjuring myself. I've been preaching things that are not operating in my life. And I'm done with this unreality. So I'm going to give God till Sunday, he wrote, to do something in me. And if God doesn't show up and change me, he's not talking about salvation, but me, I'm not going to preach anymore. Someone else can take my place. True story. He took Saturday off in a spiritual retreat and he faced God and said, spirit move. God met him that day and he went into the pulpit a new man. That Sunday, the congregation got the shock of their life. They had a new minister, though the body was exactly the same. And the congregation found themselves doing something. They started seeking what the young minister had found. Did he discover a new teaching, a five-step program? No. He was filled with the Holy Spirit again. So as we begin and I end, let me say these words to us at C4. Your family needs a spirit-filled you. Our church needs a spirit-filled you. And remember, filling is a lifetime thing. Your neighbors, friends, family members, coworkers, critics, enemies need a spirit-filled you and a spirit-filled us because we are the only representatives of Jesus in their life. When the Holy Spirit moves, and remember, this is not a starting point for us. We've been on a journey for a while as people and as a church. But as the Holy Spirit shows up again, as the church gets appropriately desperate again, as people do this again, when the Spirit of God, use the old word, revives a person... Or a family or a or a connect group or a whole church. More is accomplished in that season than years of ordinary work of church. So would you stand with me and let us ask a few things of God? Number one, Lord, we know you hear our prayers at this moment. And we know that actually we are no different than Luke or Theophilus. We're just people. But here's our first prayer. For the many theophiluses among us, skeptics who have the right to ask the difficult questions, and the seeker, soft and wondering in their heart, we pray that you would begin, Holy Spirit, to move and intellectually and experientially reveal Jesus to them so they can find hope and eternal life and purpose. Lord, you're good. Answer their questions. Hear their prayers. Heal their hurts. Mess with their worldview. (laughs) Then there's us. Honestly, God, uh, we could be very satisfied as a church, uh, but we choose not to be. So here's some prayers from our community to you, Jesus. Number one, there has been a period for many of us where we wept over lost people. Some of us still do. But the truth is, Lord, many of us don't right now. When we see our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, we actually don't really, really believe they're lost forever. So if you can pray this church, just pray it with me. Jesus, give us tears. Send your Holy Spirit to unnaturally break us. Because we just don't have it. We don't have that clothing. We want to acknowledge our need again. Holy Spirit, fill our church with character. And guess we, we're, we're praying this again. But my real prayer, Lord Jesus, is that would you send the Spirit individually on every person and tell them, tell us, what's the next thing you want to do so we will actually be like these people in prayer until you move. So God our Father and God the Son, We pray the Spirit would move. And I would ask, I cannot manipulate this. I'm requesting that though most of us are baptized in the Spirit because we are converted, I would ask now as one of the representatives of you, Jesus, as an under-shepherd here, as a leader here, that you would send tongues of fire on every Christian in this church. Fresh filling and fresh power to do new things and the next things you're asking us. And you know what, Lord? We don't just pray for us. We pray that you, Spirit, would move on every single church in our region too. So, Lord, hear our prayer and begin this journey with us. In the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.